reading today comes from Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, have a record of sin, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord, more than the watchmen wait for the morning, more than the watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all of my sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we want to say welcome again. Uh, my name is Gray. I'm the senior pastor here, and if we haven't met yet, I'd love to meet you. I was gone this last week on vacation, and uh, so thanks to everybody for filling in last week. We're continuing in a series um, on the Psalms of Ascent. You'll see that on the bulletin as you come in. Maybe you're familiar with that, maybe you're not. There's actually 15 Psalms, Psalm 120 through 134, that were set apart as a, a hymnal within the hymnal of the Psalms. And these Psalms were the songs that they would sing, most likely, as they ascended, that's why the Songs of Ascent, as they ascended to Jerusalem to worship one, two, or three times, up to three times per year. And in a way, these psalms are, are given to us, they're collected later so that we have this hymn book as a picture for the walk with God, the ascending life. We're called Ascension Church, and uh, today is Ascension Sunday, even. And so we recognize that as Christ ascended into heaven, so we have this upward life with God. Paul says, um, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says that put your minds on things that are above where Christ is seated. That's where he is. And so we also, like Israel, are moving towards the new Jerusalem. We also are on a journey of faith, and along the way we need to be equipped for this journey. And so the Psalms are the, the themes that we need to march to, that we walk towards and so they're very profound in the way that they shape our walk. And today, one of the most important things that we need to get right in our walk with God is this idea of forgiveness. Psalm 130 is what we're going to be looking at. Before we turn to it, let's ask God's help in prayer. We recognize that you're here by your Spirit you move and work within us. Whenever your word is read and heard, it does what it accomplishes. It will not return void. So we know that even just by hearing your word this morning, you are at work within us. But I pray, Lord, that you would maximize that work, that you would renew us in our minds, transform us by your scripture, that we, as we attend to it, that we would be changed. So we ask for your help this morning in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen. So we already read it twice, Psalm 130 and our confession of sin, and thank you, Shannon, for reading that for us as well. Again, I almost want to read it again. I'm not going to, but I'm tempted to because this psalm uh, is one of the most famous psalms, and as we come to it, it's almost like we're on holy ground. These eight verses are very, I'm going to use a very particular word here, 
uh, and explain it later, profound. These are profound verses. All Scripture, of course, is, is breathed out by God. All of it is profitable for us, but there are certain passages of Scripture that have stuck in the conscience of, of the church for a long time, and Psalm 130 is one of these psalms. It is profound. John Wesley, famous Methodist pastor in England in the 1700s, um, he was a pastor for many years, a preacher. He himself identifies in his journals that he was, for many years, even while he was a pastor, he was not a Christian. He was a, a, what he called a moralist, meaning he believed that he was trying to make society better um, you know, by, by doing good things, but uh, he was not yet gripped by the grace of God. And there's a famous story of him being converted at Aldersgate in London. He went to a house meeting. He heard the gospel. The way that he famously put it is he heard the good news about Jesus, and he found that his heart was strangely warmed by the gospel. That's a well-known story, but it's a little lesser known that right before that meeting that he went to, what God used to, to, to shape his heart and warm him up to the gospel is he ducked into a cathedral, St. Paul's Cathedral, and he heard the Latin choir singing Psalm 130 in Latin. And as the words start out at the beginning of verse 1, they sing, De profundus, De profundus, out of the depths, which is where we get our word profound. Out of the depths, the deep things. And that's what primed Wesley's heart so that he was ready to hear the gospel of grace and be changed. Martin Luther, another famous pastor of the church, he made a famous statement about justification, which is this doctrine in the Scriptures that says that we are made righteous before God. We are declared righteous. And Luther said this, justification, that we're made right with God, is the article by which the church stands and falls. That's one of his most famous quotes. It's this idea that we are made right with God, that we are forgiven and justified. He said that while he was looking at Psalm 130 as he was commenting on this passage. Luther had this psalm sung at his funeral. John Owen, a Puritan writer, he wrote a book about Psalm 130. It was 350 pages long about these eight verses. And in the introduction to that book, John Owen said, I couldn't stop writing, basically, I'm, I'm summarizing here, because as I came to Psalm 130, I had a fresh appreciation of the gospel, and it overflowed my heart. My point is that wiser and better men have come to this psalm, and they've found literally profound insight. De profundis, out of the depths. What did they see? What did they see in these eight verses? What I think they saw is the depth of God's forgiveness. That's something that we talk about a lot, and certainly we experience every week as we come in and we have the confession of sin and assurance of God's grace. Forgiveness is a common theme. It's a common word. You probably know what that word means in its general sense. But do you feel forgiven? Do you know that you're forgiven? Do you walk around in the freedom that 
this word forgiveness, that if God should mark iniquities, who could stand? But there is forgiveness from God. When's the last time you were thrilled by forgiveness? We experience forgiveness. This is what I want us to see today. We experience forgiveness when we focus on our honesty, but trust in God's redemption. We focus on our honesty that leads to an experience of our forgiveness, but then we trust. We don't trust in our honesty. We trust in God's redemption. And this is the way that the psalm is divided really into these two sections. And so let's look first at our honesty and then we will look at God's redemption. The first four verses are about the psalmist expressing his honest assessment of where he is. What does he do? Three things in this passage. First, he goes deep. He goes deep. I've already mentioned it. Verse 1, De profundis, out of the depths I cry to you. The depths here are the depths of the sea or the ocean. It's a very common uh, picture in the Psalms and in the rest of the Scripture of overwhelm, the depths. Just like when we say, I feel out of my depth, I feel I'm out to sea, sometimes we say, the psalmist here has the honesty to recognize that that is where he is. He is in the depths. He is feeling overwhelmed. That's where he happens to find himself. So he goes deep. And one of the beautiful things, one of the things that I think has captured the imagination of these great men that I mentioned about this psalm is the, the profoundness that God invites us to follow Him wherever we are. Whatever depths we find ourselves in, however out to sea we are, that's exactly where God has us turn to Him. I find great comfort in this and just and so encouraged to think about our faith that God can handle our complexity no matter where we are. You know, that's, that's one of those things that is very hard. Um, you know, we can have wise people in our lives. We can have people that are profound people even that can speak into our lives and we can say, can you help me with this certain circumstance that I'm in? I'm in uh, I'm out of my depths, and we might turn and ask for advice, but it'll just be that. It'll be advice, and it may be very good advice, and it may be wise, but no one knows what it's like to be you. No one knows the certain circumstance that you're in. No one knows the sorrows that you're carrying, and no one can experience life exactly the way that you experience it, except for God. And so there's great comfort in this, that God can handle our depths our complexities. What is the psalmist overwhelmed about? We have no idea. Likely it's left open like this so that whatever depths that we find ourselves in, we can adjust it and see that this is exactly where God finds us. Likely he's feeling overwhelmed by his own sin since the psalm is a penitential psalm, one of the seven penitential psalms in the Scripture. But perhaps he's also grieving. Perhaps he's experiencing some doubt. And oftentimes in our lives, we don't always know how to plumb the depths of what we're experiencing. Sometimes our sin is kind of wrapped in with grievous experiences and our own fears and our own doubts. But he says, 
Out of the depths I cry to you that you know where I am. And so he's saying, whatever complex knots are tied up in your own heart, that's exactly where the Lord is inviting you to cry out to him. That's the second thing that he does. He recognizes his depths, he goes deep, but then he cries out. Verse 2, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. So he recognizes where he is in the depths, and then he cries out. And he expects for God to hear him. Another beautiful, profound thing about following God is that he not only knows exactly where you are better than anyone else, better than you yourself, but that when he cries out to us, that when we cry out to him, he is attentive to us. We can sometimes think of God as a supercomputer in the sky, spitting out outcomes, controlling the world. But when the scriptures talk about God, they say that he listens to the cries of his people. So the psalmist goes deep, he cries out, and that prepares him then to face reality where he stands with God. Verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared in your bulletin, it says, so that we can with reverence serve you. Literally, just that you may be feared. He faces reality. This is not a negotiation with the Almighty. If you should mark iniquities, if you were to line up my performance I couldn't stand, but with you, there is forgiveness. Just so I'm facing reality here, I know exactly what I've done to walk away from you. And so what he does here is, in a, in a small form here, why Martin Luther was so drawn to this psalm, is he's this picture of the gospel. The reality is, we exist before God, not because of our performance, but because of His grace. It's not that he's keeping record and then we come out ahead. It's that if he were to do that, we wouldn't be able to be, come out ahead. And so we're existing by grace. With you, there is forgiveness. And so it's important to see his approach to God is in complete honesty and humility. He faces the reality. And he honestly recognizes where he stands with God. It's important for us to understand when it comes to forgiveness, we must have this approach to God. Humble honesty. This is the way that we approach God, not any other way. We're tempted to approach Him in other ways. How, we might, how might we do that? Well, number one, we could approach Him in pride. Pride says, I'm in control I've got a handle on this. And we can approach God as if we basically are put together. But the psalmist doesn't do that. He says, I'm out of my depths. I cry out to you from this place. I know I don't deserve your grace, but with you there's still forgiveness. 
The Scripture says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We might be, we might be tempted to approach God out of presumption. What is presumption? It says this, I know that you'll forgive me, so I'll act however I want. But forgiveness is not to be presumed upon. Look at verse 4 again. But with you there is forgiveness so that you may be feared or reverenced. It's a strange turn in that verse, isn't it? With you there is forgiveness. You would expect him to say something like, so we can experience relief. We can feel forgiven. But he says, so that you may be feared, which is, he's saying in God's economy, the way that forgiveness works, God is always ready, always willing, always able to forgive those who come to Him in humility, but that doesn't mean that God is a pushover. He is to be feared. He's to be reverenced with our lives. And sometimes we can rely too much on someone else's graciousness, can't we? When we say, well, I'll, I'll just do that. Even though they might get upset, I'll ask for forgiveness, and then it'll all be good. That's a game that we play. Sometimes we play it with our parents. If we have a loving relationship with them, you know, we can kind of presume upon them loving us, even if we're kind of mean to them. That's not a game, the psalmist says, that we play with God. We don't approach Him in presumption. We don't approach Him with pride. We don't approach Him with whitewashing. What is whitewashing? That's when we say it's not really that bad. The psalmist says, I'm in the depths, and unless you help, there is no help. There's no whitewashing. There's no blame shifting. Blame shifting says, really, someone else is the problem. Really, my circumstances are the problem. Really, the government is the problem. Really, society is the problem. And this kind of approach to God is as old as the Garden of Eden. As the man and woman sinned, they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what is the first thing they do when they respond is they blame shift. This serpent tempted me, this woman that you gave me. But the psalmist says, doesn't come with any kind of sense of blame shifting. He says, look, this is the way it stands. If you would mark iniquities, none, none of us could stand. So here's the point. We must model, if we're to experience the forgiveness of God, the approach that the psalmist does. We focus on our honesty. We go to the depths of our experience. We cry out to God for His mercy alone, and we depend on His grace for forgiveness, not our performance. The grace of God is always, always available to the honest sinner in need, but is flatly rejected for the one who comes in believing that he or she deserves it. So, how forgiveness works is that we focus on our honesty before God. We come before Him in the depths. And we tell Him who we are before Him. But that's not where we are forgiven only. Forgiveness comes through God's redemption. And that's what we trust in. Your part is over. 
You focus on honesty, but your hope has nothing to do with your ability to be honest. It has everything to do with who God is. Forgiveness comes from Him. It's only what God can do. It's found entirely in God. In fact, the second half of the psalm focuses entirely on what God does. And it says that we should hope in two things. The Word of God and the person of God. This is what we should hope in. Look at verse 5. First, the Word of God. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His Word I hope. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. It's in His Word that I hope. Or could be translated, for His Word I hope. I'm waiting to hear a word from the Lord. And what is that word going to sound like? What's it going to be? And I love the repeated image. More than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. The image is of a guard watching over a city. The, 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 the wall guard waiting for the morning. Waiting to see what kind of dangers may be out there. It's a powerful image when you think about it. What does the image suggest to us? A couple of things. If we're to be like the watchman waiting for the morning, it means that it's a duty to wait for the Lord for a good word from Him. It's a calling. It's a task. And we shouldn't expect it to come necessarily quickly all the time. As He calls out to God from the depths He calls out to him. He has to then wait for the Lord to to answer him. It doesn't always come immediately. There's a sense in which we're like the watchman and, and we have to wait for the morning to come. It's a calling. God will redeem his people, but the experience of that redemption sometimes is slow in coming. And so there's an endurance aspect to the forgiveness of God that we wait for him to give us His Word. But it's also a picture of certainty. Not just duty. Because for the watchman, the morning always comes. The, long, the night is long. And if, if they're looking for the morning, and they're looking for the morning, and there's that sense of desire for the Lord to come, for His Word to come, for the morning to come, It can feel very long, but there is a certainty to the morning coming. And he says, more, more than watchmen wait for the morning. We can expect more from God, the certainty that his word will come, that he will redeem us, that he will forgive us. It's more certain than that. The word that comes inevitably like the morning light from the the Lord, is a word of comfort, of assurance, of forgiveness. There is forgiveness for you. It's always a gracious word. It's always a word of comfort. I had a memory uh, this last week from when I was about seven or eight years old, and I had done something wrong and for the life of me, I couldn't remember what it is that I did 30-something years ago. Um, I had broken something. I had um, embarrassed someone. I can't even remember what it was that I did, but I know that it had something to do with my dad 
Because what I do remember is I remember sitting on the back of my dad's truck and having to tell him about it. And I had to wait all day to do that. Apparently, it happened in the morning. I, these, are the, these are the things that I remember. I told my mom, and she said, well, you're going to have to tell your dad. And so I had to wait all day for him to come home from work. So I was in the carport waiting for him to come home. And then he pulled in, and I had to tell him this. I had to wait with dread all day. And I remember sitting on the back of the truck and telling him, and then just his response was just so gracious. And I remember him saying, it's okay, and it's going to be fine. And that was the end of it. And I just remember that sense of relief from the, from the dread of waiting all day for this word from, from my dad. And I was with him this last week as we were on vacation, and I thought about, I had this memory this last week, and I thought about, do you remember that? Do you remember what I did? And uh, then I decided not to, <laughs> because it's kind of beautiful that I don't remember. That, you know, the scriptures say, God remembers our sins no more. He cast them to the bottom of the sea. And I don't remember what it is. I doubt he would remember it either, but the point is this. I had waited all day in fear for a, for a word from my father. And when that word came, what it turned out to be was gracious. It came with a relief. And there's more grace that we can experience from God when we wait for a word from him. It turns out that when we approach him in humility, when we lay before him in honesty, God never gives us anything other than a gracious word. That's, it's the beauty of the, of the Christian faith and how forgiveness works is that there's always a return. There's always a path home. There's always a way for us to find our way back to God no matter how far we've gone from Him. It doesn't mean that we presume on His grace. We don't say, oh, well, He's going to accept me, so I'll just do whatever I want to. That's not the heart of a repentant sinner. But, but if we do th that, if we do leave Him, there's always a return. It's always a gracious word when we come to him in honesty. So we wait and we put our hope in the word of God, his gracious dealing with us. His gracious word to us is comfort. You are welcomed back. But we also hope in the person of God. Look how the psalm ends. Oh, Israel, hope, there's the word again, in the Lord, just in Him, in him, His person. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption, and He will redeem Israel. In your bulletin, that translation is correct. He Himself will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. The double emphasis there, He Himself will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Himself. The person of God. What is this person like? For with the Lord there is steadfast love. It's hard to overemphasize the importance of that word in the Scriptures. The steadfast love of God. The word there is hesed. It's very common in the Bible. His unfailing love. His covenantal love. His love that He sets upon Israel no matter what she does to rebel against Him. This is the love that God has as a covenant love, and it's directed towards redemption. And with Him is plentiful redemption. With Him, He 
will redeem Israel. How is God going to do that? It's in himself. He himself will redeem Israel. This is what the psalmist is waiting for. This is what the world was waiting for. More than watchmen wait for the morning, they were waiting for God himself to redeem his people. And he does that in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the word of God and is the person of God. He himself will redeem Israel through his word, hope in the Lord, hope in his word, and hope in his person. This is Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, the person of God. And what he provides is plentiful, redemption, enough redemption. What does that word even mean? What is redemption? Redemption is a purchasing. It's a cost. It's buying back. Like you redeem a coupon. It just means you trade it in for the value. There's a cost. And there is no forgiveness without cost. Forgiveness always costs something. When my dad forgave me for whatever it is I did all those years ago, he, did, he didn't just say it's okay. That was his gracious word to me. Of course. But it doesn't mean that it was swept under the rug. Whatever it is I broke or however I'd embarrassed him or whatever I did to someone else that inconvenienced him, it was not passed over by him. It was absorbed by him. He took on the cost. And when God forgives, he absorbs the cost of sin. That's what redemption is. It's plentiful with God. He lays down his life. He absorbs the cost of our sin by placing it on His beloved. And this is what the Christian life is. This is why Wesley was so warmed by this and why Luther wanted this song at his funeral and why John Owen had to write 350 pages because this is where redemption is. It's in God's absorbing love, His costly love on His Son, Jesus Christ, which redeems the people of God, buys them back, places it on himself so that we can be forgiven. As we close, let me ask you, how do you comfort yourself when you're out of your depth? When you're overwhelmed by your own sin or grief in your life or doubts or fears and it's all mixed in together and there's a complexity Maybe some of you are there right now. What, what are the words of comfort that come to you? Is it, I got this? Is it, I'll do better? Is it, it's not as bad as it could be? Is it, at least I'm better off than that person? There's all this cold comfort. When Real comfort is offered to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ that God himself will save you from the depths. It's so common for us to want to take back on that energy and take back that initiative and say, well, I can redeem myself. Richard Lovelace, a great writer, says this, common sense tells us that this forgiveness, totally free for us, though it costs the Son of God his life, is too good to be true. Our conscience tells us to find something in ourselves to justify us. Works, repentance, state of grace, an infusion of the life of Jesus. And it's true that all these things will be present in the soul which exercises justifying faith. 
but all are virtually impossible unless the heart's deepest foundation is grateful acceptance of the free gift of the Messiah's righteousness. Common sense, our misguided conscience, and our pride must be replaced with total reliance on the Messiah for our acceptance with God. We so want to enter back in. Our conscience tells us forgiveness can't just be granted. It has to be earned. But if the Lord, if the Lord should mark iniquities, which one of us could stand? Answer, none of us. It must be found in God himself. That's where redemption is found. And so our calling is to face our lives and the depths of our problems with honesty. Your task is honesty, but your hope is in God. We can't be our hope. If we place our hope in the, in the shifting sands of our own performance, there will be only cold comfort. But if in our hope is in the Word of God, Jesus Christ, if our hope is in the person of God, Jesus Christ, then with Him is plentiful redemption. And we can ask from that place of forgiveness, of that sureness that the morning has come, that righteousness has been granted through His his son, ask him to know, to experience the forgiveness that is truly already ours. Let's pray. Father, some of us are waiting on the city walls, looking out wondering when we're going to be free of our sin, when we're going to be free of depression, of our family drama, of whatever depths that we find ourselves in, and we're watching for a word from you. Would you shine on us this morning the light of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ, that the morning has come that you have already redeemed Israel from all his iniquities. And you've redeemed us. And we may experience the life of the pit, the depths. That's not where we're actually found. Rather, we are seated with you in the heavenly places. We are fully saved from the depths of the sea. We are your children. In your word, we hope, and in the person of Jesus Christ, we cling to this morning. And as we come to the table, would you feed us again with this hope that through the cross, you have redeemed Israel from all her sins. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.